Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for listening today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing really great, Forrest, and I'm especially psyched because we're going to be joined with someone that I have revered, actually, Dr. Sue Johnson, a world-renowned psychologist for about 28 good reasons. Yeah, Dr. Johnson is the founder of Emotionally Focused Therapy, EFT, a gold standard evidence-based approach to couples therapy that's based on the science of attachment. And as you might guess from the name, EFT focuses on our emotions and emphasizes how the strength of our emotional connections dictates the quality of our relationships. She's widely regarded, as you said, as one of the best, most influential couples therapists in the world and has written, I believe it's seven books, including the best-selling Hold Me Tight and the recent Primer for Emotionally Focused Individual Therapy, which applies the insights from EFT to working with individuals. And she's also the author of the wonderful Edgar and Eloise, an illustrated novel that uses its narrative to teach important relational skills and explore what it's like to be human or, hey, a porcupine in an uncertain world. So, Sue, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Uh, thank you for that fascinating introduction. Yes, okay. <laughs> That's good. Let's talk about porcupines. Okay. Yeah, love it. <laughs> Prickly on the outside and soft on the inside. Uh, Sounds like a certain attachment style to me. <laughs> it could even be something to do with the author, actually. That, that sort of mm. describes me quite well, actually, yes. Mm. It's like some life imitating art, imitating life sort yes. of thing going on here. I like yes. that, yeah. Yes. Well, Sue, if I could jump in. You're very well known, of course, for creating emotionally focused therapy, which aims at couples, but of course has tremendous value for individuals in couples and individuals generally. What led you to create a new thing? Why weren't the other 250 named psychotherapies already in Wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> enough, <laughs> and including maybe even related to your own personal background? What, what drew you into creating this? We could start in a lot of different places. I think one place to start is that when I was growing up, my parents fought constantly. In Hold Me Tight, I tell the story of sitting on the stairs with my grandmother, listening to them fight. And their fights were horrendous. And I mean, they never became physical, but they were horrendous. My mother was a little, she was one of the most aggressive human beings I've ever met. And I said to my granny, why do they do this? And my granny said, because they love each other, dear. And the irony there was that that was true. And what was also true was that they fought and made each other miserable. And then when my mother left, my father never recovered from that. He went through World War II. He recovered from all kinds of dreadful things. He was a strong, kind man, okay? but he did not ever recover from her leaving him. So I think I always had a thing about relationships. <laughs> First of all, I decided that as a young working class woman in England, I was never going to get married because I looked around me at the relationships. They were all absolutely awful. They were all either distant financial arrangements with no particular connection or antagonistic. So then in my doctoral studies, 
I'd worked a lot with disturbed adolescents. I'd worked a lot with families. I'd worked a lot with individual therapy. And then the last thing I was given was a, a placement in a clinic. And they said, oh, we're so glad you're here. And we know that you only have to do two couples. But actually, since your experience, we're going to give you, if you don't mind, couples on the hour, every hour for three days in a row. And I thought, it, and this is how arrogant I was, okay? I thought, <laughs> oh, sure. You know, well, how hard I got this. How yeah. I, I've worked with individuals, I've worked with groups, I've worked with families. It's going to be, it's no problem. Well, I went into my first couple and I couldn't do anything with them. I They were screaming at each other, yelling. I finally came up with incredibly sophisticated strategies that were heard all over the clinic by all the other people when I yelled, <laughs> shut up. This was. I thought you were just blowing a loud whistle like a referee. No, I yelled. I'm crazy. I yelled. Shut up. I mean, I've I've worked with couples too, and I've thought about literally wearing a shirt with those vertical black and white stripes, you right. know, with a whistle around my neck to kind of cue them into stay inside the lines, please. No, well, there weren't any lines, and then yeah. I realized that I had no idea what I was doing. So I was at this point in graduate school. You guys can probably remember this when you actually believe that every secret in the universe is in the library if you can just find it. So mm. I went to the library and came out with huge amounts of books from psychoanalysis, behavioral therapy, behavioral couple therapy. And I started trying some of them and it was all, none of it, none of it worked. I would try to teach people skills huh. and they would learn them and they'd comply and they'd do the skills and then the minute the skills exercise stopped, they turn around and start shutting each other out or trying to kill each other again. So I thought, okay, nothing works. And I thought the central issue here is I don't really understand what this drama is all about. And then I read books about how well love, you know, you can understand the Higgs boson, you can understand physics, but there's no <laughs> way anyone can understand love. So I thought, well, now I'm really in a pickle. <laughs> I'm in a real pickle. I don't know what to do. So thank goodness, I just started taping my couples. I said, would you mind if I tape you? And I started looking at my sessions and I became obsessed. And I started gradually, gradually, painstakingly looking at things that seemed to work. And what seemed to work was Rogerian things like slowing everything down with empathic reflection listening to the emotion behind the content. He's yelling at her because he wants her to make love more often. And he, he tells her, I want you to make, if you loved me, you'd make love to me three times a day. You know, and I'm starting to feel exhausted just listening to him, you know, and, <laughs> and, and then I, re and, and my first response is, oh, you're impossible, right? But it's obvious to me, she's not going to leave him. So then I stopped to really listen to him and I realized that this isn't high testosterone, which is what he told me in the beginning. This isn't incredible sexual obsession. He's in a panic. And when I start to explore it, he starts to tell me that the only time he feels that he's sure she loves him is when they're actually making love. And more than that, she has to have an amazingly powerful orgasm. And then he knows just for a moment that he's safe. So then I start to go into his feelings of not being safe and never being enough. And suddenly this demanding, impossible, totally unempathic man 
becomes vulnerable and starts to talk about how she's beautiful and he's not. He's short and square and she was always clever and he's not. And she was really in love with his best friend and she just married him because his best friend dumped her. They've been married for 30 years. They have five children. Okay, it doesn't matter. He's got this frame. So I started to listen to the underlying plot underneath all these huge dramas and started to put together ways to talk to people about their strong emotions and ways to help them talk to each other about them. And things started to change. But the interesting thing is, I didn't really know why it was working, okay? Mm, I just knew that it worked better than skills. I was driving down to see Neil Jacobson, who was the king of behavioral marital therapy at the time, and he would just listen to ideas and laugh. He would laugh. And I was the strange little Canadian student who sat at the back of the room, and he'd say things like, you can negotiate for anything in a relationship. He said, you don't agree with that, do you, Sue? And I'd say, no. It's silly. The really important <laughs> things you, you can't negotiate for. No, you can't negotiate hmm. for love, affection, and care. And, and he'd say, and everyone would chortle. But then I'd look at my couples and my results, but I didn't understand why. And then finally at a conference, he was there and somebody said to me, well, he's right. Relationships are just bargains. You can negotiate for anything and what you have to do is get people out of their emotions and to be more rational and create good deals for everybody. And I said, that's nonsense. And this person said, well, if they're not bargains, what are they? They're bonds. Hmm. And that was one of the moments that defined my life because John Bowlby and attachment theory, which was not applied to adults at that time, it was only applied to mothers and children. John Bowlby just clicked. It's like, oh my God. This would be roughly the 1980s or 90s? Yeah, uh, 80s, yes, 1980s. And all through the 90s. Before adult attachment really became a frame. I tried to say say romantic relationships or attachment bonds, and I got crucified. And then social psychologists like wonderful Mario Michelanza in Israel I started going to conferences and listening to these people, and they started talking about adult attachment. And I became clearer and clearer and clearer about that romantic love is an attachment bond, much like we have with parents. Of course, it's not the same. I don't need my husband to come and hold my hand all the time if I'm in a distressing situation. I'm an adult, so I have him in my head. I have him in my heart, in my body, and in my head. I can hear his voice a representation of his voice. I can even hear my father's voice, who was my main attachment figure growing up. That's what we do as adults. We carry this drama inside of us, whereas children, they play it out all the time in in the world. I think one of the reasons we love dogs is because dogs play it out. Your dog says to you every morning, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Very secure attachment figure. Absolutely, yeah. So I just realized what was happening. And then my work just took off because I became a prof. I had all these wonderful students. We started doing research. Now we have over 20, 30 studies. We have fantastic outcome data. We have follow-up data. We know our stuff works. 
Attachment gives you a map. How as a therapist do you work with something as complicated as a distressed relationship if you don't have a map? Really, Mm. you have to have a map to the huge emotional drama in front of you. You have to know the plot. And you have to know what a good good ending looks like. That was a completely gripping summary of a good 30 years of couples therapy yes, there. Yes, so okay. so that was that was phenomenal honestly and I I was totally taken by it. And I just I want to return you if we could. You said so much there that I want to ask you about. But you painted this picture in the beginning right of this couple who comes into the office and you said I can teach them all the skills in the world, but once they exit the skills demo they go right back to killing each other. And then you started to unpack this guy's experience, right? Yes. How he was hungering for a more secure relationship. He had deep insecurities about the nature of his relationship with his partner. He was resurfacing this material from 30 years ago, whatever it might have been. And then you talked about attachment, how you were like, okay, an attachment can give us a map here. It can kind of explain to us or, or give us a sense of what might be going on inside of this relationship. And so- what I'm wondering, Sue, is is what the missing puzzle piece was that you found through your work to get those skills to stick in real life as opposed to being just stuck in the demo. The missing puzzle piece is if there is one to be oh, to be so, you one. know. There is all right. one, Boris. The missing <laughs> puzzle piece is you don't have to teach skills. You have to sing to people's amygdala. And the music Mm. in their amygdala has been there forever. Since we struggled out of the primordial ooze, we need connection with another human being to survive and even, and, and certainly to thrive. You know, basically Freud was wrong. Sex and aggression are not the, the biggest instincts. The need to connect with another human being is the biggest instinct. And emotional isolation is inherently traumatizing in itself. And that's what attachment tells you. So attachment helps me understand the franticness of the drama that couples are caught in when they're distressed. It helps me understand the emotions. It helps me understand the longings. But the real piece is, if you can get people into what we call a bonding conversation, we call a hold me tight conversation, If you can get people into that conversation where they accept their own vulnerabilities, they're able to share them and reach for their partner in a way that pulls their partner close, and they have a bonding conversation, you don't have to practice it. You don't have to teach it. They will remember it. It's biologically prepared learning. They will remember it because their whole nervous system says this this is about survival. This is what I need. I can be here and be myself and explore and grow. This is it. Our research says, never mind just doing EFT. If you code these conversations on a videotape, which you can, if you code them, when people have these conversations, it doesn't just predict marital satisfaction, better sexuality, more trust, more secure attachment. These are huge. This is much better than just feeling better about your marriage. It doesn't predict all the, just predict all these variables. It predicts less depression, less PTSD, because our biggest resource as human beings is to turn to another and know that another is there for us. Then our pain is manageable and tolerable 
and we can work through it with somebody else, not when we're alone. The point is that our follow-up was fantastic. It stays. These things stay. Because once you learn to have hold me tight conversations, you keep having them because they're so rewarding. You know, it's it's like synchrony. Before COVID, I was obsessed with Argentine tango. But Argentine tango is not all the silly sexual stuff on Dancing with the Stars. It's an exercise in attunement. Right. It's an exercise in going to that place where you're open, responsive, and engaged, which is what happy partners are with each other. That's what you are in a, in a bonding conversation, open, responsive, or in, and engaged. So first, I just want to acknowledge you and your history as a pioneer. And I was really struck as well by the trajectory of Barbara Fredrickson, who yes. also risked career suicide in her work on positive emotions, yes. which again, were dismissed as significant whatsoever. So I just want to really tip my hat to you. Probably part of the story, too, is being a woman in a typically male-dominated profession also at the time, much like Dr. Fredrickson, is just really, a, you know, to me, a very worthy thing to just pay attention to. So my question is, if I could, what's it feel like from the inside to be in a bonding conversation? And what are some of the things that people can do themselves to kind of help themselves be in a bonding kind of conversation, especially with an imperfectly attuned partner? Well, we're all imperfectly attuned. We yeah, have to, it's, it's an like. ongoing way of dancing. You have to you have to learn to dance together, right? And you're always adjusting. Yeah, in a way other people might put it, what, what helps us come into the heart and be in the heart and from the heart while it's scary and also be drawing someone else into that space with you as well? Well, if we look at therapy, but I think it happens in, in life as well with friends and mm -hmm. good attachment figures, mm -hmm. we have to begin to get our emotional balance. We have to feel safe enough that we can actually not just stay on surface feelings, which often are irritation and anger, which is, I see it as protest. A lot of anger in relationships really is, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? You don't respond to me. I don't feel like I matter to you. I'm going to yell at you until you respond, right? Right. The floggings will continue until morale improves. That's right. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and, but people don't see it that way. They feel attacked. So then they withdraw. Yeah. And then so you get the dance that messes up most relationships in North America, which is, one person's yelling, but the communication is distorted. So they, they're blaming and putting down instead of saying, I'm lonely. Where are you? I need you. Come and be with me. And the other person just hears blame and hears, I'm not wanted. I'm not enough. And they shut down. And the more one person shuts down, the more frantic the other person gets, the more they attack. And they're caught in this dreadful dance. And it's the dance that's the problem. They're just human beings. But in order to move into a bonding conversation, you know, and I write about this and hold me tight for couples. But, you know, in order to go into this conversation, somehow, whether it's through friends, therapy, even maybe meditation, some process of awareness, we have to step past the surface, reactive, shut down, defensive anger and meet our vulnerabilities, meet whatever it is that's pushing this. And it's, mm. it's usually sadness, some sort of shame, fear about the self as unlovable, or fear, fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, 
fear of isolation, which is wired into your nervous system as a bonding mammal, okay? And you don't get to choose that one. It's not about how intelligent you are or how strong your personality is. That's wired in. We feel safer when we're connected with others. This is all over the place right now. Everyone's decided suddenly that loneliness is a problem. Well, yeah, duh. You know, it shuts down your immune system. It creates, dep- oh, it creates, you're flooded with cortisol. I mean, we could go into it forever. But what attachment does is tell us about that vulnerability and tell us that it has logic and order to it. It's not a weakness. And when people can start to feel it, you know, when Danny can say to his wife, actually, I don't really need to make love to you three times a day. I need you to touch me. I need you to reassure me that I matter and that you need me. And I go into a panic when I see you being distant. And I understand how I've pushed you away with all my demands now, but I'm scared. And his wife, you know, this would happen so often in couples therapy. The other person would look like like their partner had turned into an, an alien from space because they had. You know, his wife says, basically, no, you're obsessed with sex, you're aggressive, and what are you talking about? You're not afraid. <laughs> what do you, who are you? Right? And then I have to help her. I say, it's strange for you. You don't see him this way. He never shows you this part of him, does he? Mm-hmm. Then Danny starts to talk about his vulnerability. And it pulls his wife towards him. And as he goes into his vulnerability and admits it, admits what he needs, most people, you know, you say, what do you need from your partner? They say, I don't know, less conflict for her to be less mean. You know, they don't aware, they're not aware of their needs. Then Danny can ask for his needs to be met. I need you to touch me. And he does it in a way that pulls his wife towards him, where he's open and helps her be responsive, and she sees him differently, and she responds. She doesn't respond out of skill or rational deal or insight. She responds emotionally to her husband, who actually deep down she loves, even though she never enacts that in their relationship anymore. Right? She responds. And suddenly, he feels safe with her. And then she does the same thing. So they're all about being able to Sit in that vulnerability, accept it. You know, sit in, go past the anger into whatever threat is happening for you. Go past the shame, there must be something wrong with me, and recognize that it's really a fear about the self and share it with the partner. Go into the sadness because on the other side of sadness is your longing. Hmm. And you can, you know, I work a lot with trauma with individuals right now, and I'm always fascinated by the fact that I think they're going to go into fear and panic. And actually, they're going into sadness. They're going into grief. They're going into grieving what they never had. They're going into grieving that when they were small and being abused by their brothers, they longed, they longed, they longed for someone to come, someone to see them, someone to see their pain and say it mattered. And they tell me, I'm depressed. But when we really go into that depression, she's not depressed. 
she's heartbroken. And when she can talk about how heartbroken she is and how sad she feels, and I'm there with her, and we walk and walk into that and out the other side to what she needed and a sense of secure connection with self, that this is what she needed and there was nothing wrong with it, that translates into a secure connection with her partner because she can then tell him, this is what happened to me, this is where I hurt, this is what I need, I need you to come and hold me. Relationships heal and they're the most natural place we have to heal. What distresses me in our field is that I look at how we train therapists and we train them in techniques. We train them in, give me a quick, give me the quickest way out of this with a client. The manual is you have to know to go in and connect with somebody and attune to them. And if you don't know that, you might as well throw your manual out the window. Rogers believed in growing people. Bowlby believed in growing people. Your job is to believe that people can grow. And if you see good love relationships, never mind therapy, when people fall in love, if it's a good relationship, they grow each other. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast. But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. 
And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. To ask you about this soon, there's so much there. There might be somebody who's listening to this podcast right now who is going, wow, this sounds amazing. I would love to be able to have this kind of an interaction, this kind of a conversation with my partner. But my experience is that they're just not that receptive to it. In a classic therapeutic setup, there's often uh, one partner in the couples counseling who is more more energized to be there than the other partner, and maybe they're kind of bringing along their partner who eh, doesn't really want to be doing this thing, either in like a therapeutic setting or just having an interaction with your with your partner that you want more availability from. What yes. helps move people there in the first place? Well, if you look at the conversations in Hobby Tight and you look at the way we do couple therapy. We don't start with saying to people, please be vulnerable. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you totally. know, we, yeah, we start with validating where they are and the fact they have good reasons for being where they are. So we start with looking at the dance they do, the pattern they do, and the dance is the problem. The dance and the disconnection, the dance of distress and the disconnection are the problem, not the conflict per se or the fact that they're different or, you know, whatever the, all the other ways of framing the problem is. And we talk about the dance. So we say, you know, do you notice? They'll tell us all this content and we listen. But then we say, do you notice that what happens here is you don't feel heard, so you raise your voice. And the more you raise your voice, you try to, you're trying to get, what do you say, get through to him. And you start pointing things out and you get more and more upset. And I noticed, Peter, that as your wife does that, you turn away, your face goes flat, you look out the window, you shut down. And the more you shut down, the more you shut her out. And the more you feel shut out, Mary, the louder you start to yell, have I got it? And they'll say, oh, yes. And I say, you've been doing this for 20 years, yes. Oh, my goodness. That's such a terrible dance, isn't it? And it's taken over your relationship. We all get stuck in patterns. People start to see where they're caught. And then a therapist makes enough safety that the therapist starts to be able to, we call it finding the raw spot, starts to be able to validate these vulnerabilities. Like I might say to Peter, of course you shut down, Peter. Of course you do. From what I know about your family, that was the only safe thing to do. There was no other choice. You had to learn to numb out. Let's talk about that. What happens to you when your wife starts to yell? You say, oh, I don't know. But he does. I just have to hang in with him, right? And so I ask him very simple questions. What's happening right now when you look at her face? What's that like for you? What comes up? And of course, what comes up is some version of, well, it's, I'm uncomfortable. And where do you feel that in your body? Well, it's, I'm tight in my chest. And then what happens? What do you say to yourself? I say to myself, I'm never going to make it with her. 
It's hopeless. I'm never, she's, I'm not what she wants. And then he starts to weep. And then we turn and use that in a bonding conversation. We turn and say, we support that, we validate it, we hold it, we regulate it, we've evoked it, and we regulate it at the same time. And then we help him share it to change the drama. New emotional music, new dance. Can you turn and tell your partner, please? I do shut down. I do. I shut down because I feel like I'm, 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 I'm going to fail whatever I say. I don't know how to give you what you want, and I'm failed, and I'm, a disapp- I'm the big disappointment, and I can't bear it. You matter so much to me. That's why I shut down. And then we help his partner hear that. Well, that's the beginning of a bonding conversation where you share vulnerabilities and fears and needs. But couples have to go into it if they've never seen it. Literally, it's hard for you to do a dance you've never seen. Yeah, a lot of people don't have good modeling around any of this. Yeah. Right. Some of them do. If you've, if you've had a good relationship with a parent, you maybe know it. If you've watched your parents in a good relationship, you know it. But some of us have got no models at all. And so then the therapist or a story that has to show you that's possible. You know, as society these days, there's a lot of messages out there that this isn't even possible. That the way to have a relationship is once you're familiar, it's going to be boring. And the only way to have great sex is to have affairs and not tell each other. And it's all about you and how self-sufficient you are. This is rubbish. Relationships are water for us. I mean, what I've seen, and again, I'm thinking here about people whose 99%, if not more of their interactions, will not be with a skilled couples counselor. They will be in the wild, as it were. And so <laughs> one thing that I've just seen that's, that's hopeful to force question, and it's been my journey as well as a kid who was, you know, I grew up as a kid who was very shy, socially awkward, felt horrible about myself. So my own journey, and I've seen it in others, is, and I just want to check this with you, I think you'll agree, beginning with self-awareness, you know, opening up to oneself, tuning into oneself, and being resourced enough in various ways to start getting in touch with yourself it certainly does help to have models where basically whatever the other person does in an important relationship, if you can be that person who's relatively centered and in your heart while you speak and sharing your experience and being in your experience, in your experience as you name your experience. Yes. In other words, being congruent in a very Rogerian kind of sense. I adore Carl Rogers. So there you are. That does tend to draw most people eventually into that, dare I say it, resonance with you. And if you're rested there multiple cycles with another person and they continue being a total jerk, that's a clue. (laughs) But most people do kind of come to you. It's funny that it's like the strongest move is to be the most vulnerable person in the conversation. You're right. And I love what you just said. And it's beautiful. The thing is that you have to have your ground underneath you for that. Definitely. And we all lose our balance at times. And when I watch people at the beginning of EFT and EFIT, individual EFT, the first bit is about getting that balance. Because what we want to do in EFIT, in individual therapy, is to create this secure connection with self, as well as then translate it to others. And that means 
literally changing the way you relate to yourself, which is we're trying to help people relate to themselves with more acceptance, more awareness, you know, and often what we'll do in EFIT, for example, is rather than inviting somebody into new emotions, more vulnerable emotions and their needs and longings, and then asking them to share it with their partner, we'll have someone close their eyes, you know, and see the small, vulnerable, traumatized self. And it's fascinating because you say, can you see this small part of you, this part of you that you never talk about, that you say is weak, pathetic, you never let yourself feel, but you did just let yourself feel right there. Can you see that small 10-year-old boy? He's fascinating. And he says, no, I don't see him. There's nobody there. He's a ghost. He's a ghost. Ah, so you help me. Nobody saw him. You've practiced for years not seeing him. (laughs) Seeing him is not allowed. If I understand what you just said, it's heresy. So what you're telling me is you can't see him at all? That little boy who never belonged, who was sad all the time, you can't see him. And if you hang in, you know, he says, I can't see his face. Say, I see, okay. But if you were there with him now, what would you want to say? And he comes up with some huge intellectual thing. So, <laughs> so I slow him down again <laughs> with my voice. We know how to do this, by the way. We know how to regulate emotion. If you're going to work with emotion, you have to go slow and low. If I say, can we just stay here for a minute? That little boy, he's 10 years old. You can't see him. He's sort of fuzzy. He's like a ghost. But you know he's there. Can you tell him? I've spent so long not seeing you. I've spent so long not listening to you. Nobody wants to listen to you. Seuss says you're there, but nobody wants to listen to you. I'm not going to listen to you. I don't want to see you. And he starts to cry. Right? And he says, do I have to do this? I say, of course not. We'll go as slow and as... Basically, yes, you do, because I'm doing EFIT. I know, I know where I'm going. I know Eventually. Where I'm going. Yeah, I yeah. Got one day, one day. Yes, but I don't say, I say, no, of course not. I have a question about this, Sue, because I'm, I'm not aware, actually. I've always felt like EFT and IFS-based approaches have a lot of like natural synergy with each other and kind of overlap with each other. Is that kind of explicitly parts-based work something that you think can be be useful for people in the course of EFT or e- yes, yeah. but we mostly talk to get people to talk about vulnerable parts of themselves or attachment figures. We're attachment based, so we have a particular map. I think we have a different way of working with emotion. We don't go into naming all these parts mm, because mm-hmm. for me that becomes rather an intellectual prefrontal cortex thing. Sure, whereas I be, want yeah. to sing to people's amygdala, and it naturally evolves in the therapy. You know when somebody's ready. And it's interesting how getting close to that vulnerable part is a process. You know, somebody says, well, I can see her from a distance, but no, Mm, I'm not going to speak to her. And I say, okay, just tell her I see you. And I'll bring up all the powerful words she's used, suffering in silence, all by yourself, invisible. Say, I see you. Can you tell her that? And then in the next session, suddenly she says, I think I'll go in and hold her. 
say, okay. So it's got its own logic. It's not parts from the top down outside. It's parts from the bottom up. And we know it works. We've just done the first big study of eFit. It's not out yet, but the results are really good. We know it works. And we also know it works really well with traumatized folks. Because from my point of view, trauma is lots of things, but basically it's an emotional disorder. It's a disorder of emotion regulation. And it seems to me you can help people in lots of ways in trauma. You can help them with yoga, exercise, whatever. But if you're going to go to the heart of the matter, if you're going to change the organizing thing, that the music that defines this dance, if you're going to change the heart of the matter, you've got to go into the emotion in and through it with somebody. And you've got to be able to do that. So three things here quickly. First, your new moniker, the amygdala whisperer. Okay, I just want to <laughs> see that license plate frame. Your All right. car. Really good. I can see you driving <laughs> like a giant Jeep pickup truck with huge <laughs> tires, the amygdala whisperer. The, the lifted you know, bass rolling People will be following you thing. down yeah. the freeway. Okay, that's... First thing. Second, uh, I'm reminded of the quote, I think you know it, I believe from Frieda from Reichman, who said in a nutshell, the client needs a new experience, not a new idea. That's right. And we are busy giving people new ideas and new thoughts and new behaviors. And we know that change comes from new experience. And in my book that I wrote about Edgar and Eloise, Edgar's a crow, Eloise is fox. You know, Edgar says, I'm a pathetic, weak, ridiculous crow. And Eloise, like a rather in a distressed couple, Eloise says, indeed you are. And you're going to have to improve if you're going to talk to me because I'm a totally glorious animal. I'm so beautiful. I, I can cry. <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody giggles and it's this chubby little porcupine who's a therapist who takes Edgar through the growth process that we see in EFT with couples and in EFIT, he makes it clear how the animals are stuck in very dysfunctional ways of dealing with their fear. But it's really, it's a story about how we define ourselves and how we relate to each other and how we deal with very basic, difficult emotions like yeah. fear. And you're right. It starts with awareness and being able to be grounded. And lots of times, that groundedness, we need the help of another person. So I want to ask you an oddball question. Go on then. That's that's really alive for me. Because of course I'm I'm in therapy with you right now. So <laughs> <laughs> unbeknownst to you. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm getting some personal value here. And I want to see if I can frame my question clearly. I think, and it's been true for me, that one of the most important relationships to develop and this gets a little mysterious in how we language it, is to develop a relationship with the inherent core within ourselves and thus within every being that is all right, that is fine, and that is awake and wakeful and, and sweet and beautiful and content and wise. And that inner core is often, we often become alienated from it. I certainly was in our upbringing. We live in a kind of chronic inner homelessness, alienated from that innermost core. And there's just something fundamental 
in the healing process where we get in touch with it. Other, you know, traditions like Buddhism talk about innate goodness, and for others it may move into something even transcendental, the soul essence, so forth. But whatever it is, mysteriously, what's our relationship with it? Coming to terms with that core and our relationship with it just seems to me to be something important. And I wondered if you could comment on it. That resonates with me totally. I think the tricky part is that I'm always fascinated by what blocks that. Yeah. What blocks our self, our focus on ourselves, our willingness to explore ourselves, our willingness to accept what we feel, our willingness to ex- to be in the moment and say, what is happening to me right now? What blocks that? In other words, what blocks the identification with yes that beautiful, already innately pure and okay and intact parts of ourselves. Basically, fear blocks it. Fear. Fear, yeah. And so I can't be with it. I can't accept it. I can't listen to it. You know, I mean, really, what do we do with emotion? We focus on it, track it, validate it. We say emotions are logical. There's nothing illogical about emotion. There's a reason... There's an order to emotion. There's a structure. And if you know what it is, you can befriend emotion. You can stay with it. So let's talk about fear. And what we find, and I think this is true in meditation, it's true in all kinds of awareness things, you have the faith in yourself that you can tolerate it. You feel it. And as you do that, it becomes more specific. Mm. Right? So I think that's even true with huge fears. Like I was talking to my son yesterday, it was Easter, and we were talking about what Easter's about, you know, and uh, religion and what religion's about, and that everyone is afraid of dying. And he he says to me, I'm not afraid. I don't think I'm afraid of dying. I think it's just going to sleep. But then he said something that I think is universal. He said, uh, well, I think what I'm afraid of is pain. Hmm. And I said, because I'm a therapist, and you know, I said, yeah, my sense is it's more than that. It's not just pain. It's pain coupled with helplessness, that there's nothing you can do, and that your whole being becomes just about pain. And he says, yes, that's right. And for me, that was a positive conversation about something very difficult that most of us avoid, because it specified things and what the research says is one of the things that keeps us trapped in fear is that we generalize it and we catastrophize we make it huge and vague and then we can't deal with it it's overwhelming by its very nature it's overwhelming and i see that in in relationships all the time you know somebody is highly highly anxious comes in with all kinds of diagnoses What it really boils down to is they're terrified to trust anyone. So they're perpetually alone and they can never center themselves because they're always watching for threat of being rejected and abandoned. And they're always on guard and they can never just calm down and listen to themselves. Right. And sort of get grounded and say, I'm afraid of being rejected. I'm afraid I will look into your face. And I will see that I am not acceptable to you. So you're right, Rick. And I think it's the wisdom that's in Buddhism. 
mean, Carl Rogers, just the innate goodness in people deep down inside that more organismic approach historically. I know we're going to be finishing soon and I want to slip this in. Much of the framing of what we've talked about has to do with individual A and individual B, let's say, and what individual A hopes to receive from individual B and being honest and vulnerable and in a bonding conversation about that. That's great, receiving. I find myself thinking about, for me, one of the great attachment theory books of all time, The Runaway Bunny. And basically, <laughs> as you well know, the bunny runs, the little kid bunny runs through, the, goes through these various things and ways in which uh, it will run away from them. It seems like a mommy bunny, you know, turn into a cloud. And the mommy bunny says, I will be the wind and follow you. Or little bunny says, I'll be a fish. And the mama bunny says something like, I'll be a whale and follow you. We want to know that we won't be left behind. We want to know that they will seek us. That's they will right. want us enough to seek us. And so I'm thinking now about that foundation of secure attachment, one aspect of it, looking to the other side of the equation from what we receive from others to really communicate to others when it's true for us that I care about you. You do matter to me. I will come for you. I will... I might not do it perfectly at first, but I'll work my way through the brambles to try to connect with that beautiful innermost being in you that I recognize and care about. Anyway, I just want to kind of bring all that up and see what you think about it. I resonated with it completely. And what came up for me was, I think that one of the biggest things that influenced me is I grew up in an English pub. My father ran a pub. And it was a working class pub. And it wasn't, it wasn't a pub like people know pubs now. It was basically a community center, okay? Yeah. And people would come in, and you thinking of, you feeling that people want to reach for you. I can remember watching my father, a man would come in at six every night. He'd say the same things to my father, the same exact things, superficial things. Hello, Arthur, how are you? How's the weather? The weather's bad. Oh, yes, it's always bad. What about the D to D to D? Yes, the buses aren't on time. And it was obvious to me that the content was irrelevant. I thought, what is happening here? What is happening here is that man would sit down on the stool and express in lots of ways with his face and I'm alone, I'm alone, I'm alone. And I come in here to talk to you every night. And my father would not just give him a beer. He'd lower his voice. He'd call him by name. And he'd reach his huge hand out and put his hand on this man's hand on the bar. And the man always left his hand on the bar. And I think, because I'm little, oh, my daddy <laughs> loves that man. My, my, daddy, my, my daddy's taking care of that man. So yeah. I would, was taught to see past the, the, the superficial conversation, because English people are incredibly good at superficial conversations, okay? I mean, like, really good. <laughs> you know, that's where Monty Python came from, silly superficial conversations. But we all long for that connection. We long, we want to be seen, we want to be believed in, we want to be trusted. We want to know we're valuable. We want to feel that we're with people whose fundamental stance is, I will come find you. But that is so different from so much of what is happening in our society right now, which is it's all yeah. about you aren't even supposed to need that. You're supposed to look in the mirror every morning and tell yourself how wonderful you are. This is nonsense. This is toxic nonsense. 
I think of Winnicott's line. You know, Daniel Winnicott, the great child psychiatrist, talking about kids who play who play uh, withdrawal games, peekaboo or hide and seek, as he put it, a joy to be hidden, a disaster not to be found. Exactly. We all want to be found. We want, and we want people who will seek to find us. And then it's obviously important to be findable. That I think that's one of the reasons we we all have this huge epidemic of depression, particularly in young women, but everywhere, and we're all dealing with the results of COVID. But you know, I was standing waiting at the baker's the other day, and I'm in a line down the street because this is a very good baker, and this very <laughs> little, very elderly lady stands, and I start talking to her, and she says. I think I'm going to go back to Denmark where I was born. I say, goodness me, how long have you lived here? She said, oh, 30 years. And I said, what would have you going back to Denmark now? She said to me, when I first came here to the west coast of Canada, I felt safe and I felt like people cared for me. And if I fell down in the street, everyone would come and lift me up. And I said, okay. And now? She said, oh, no. They wouldn't do that now. I think if I fell down, people are very busy. My heart broke. Wow. And so you're right. I think we're dealing as a society and as therapists and as people in relationships, we're dealing with, in the end, we seem to have created a society that doesn't fit our human needs at all. It fits our needs to make money. It fits our needs to, to have bigger houses. It fits our needs to have you know, one bathroom for every bedroom. But what about our human needs for connection and contact? If we think, if we take attachment seriously that we're we're wired for connection whoa we're in trouble i, I want to ask you a little bit just here at the end sue if it's okay about that individualistic mentality and the idea of you know a joy to be hidden a disaster not to be found and what i mean by that is that you know we want you uh, rick was talking about we want to be sought and you were affirming that very much and and it made me think of my own my own life and my own journey, where I think that for a long time I was a very individualistic person inside of my relationships. I was very much about I am safe as me, and the more that I enter into this dual relationship, the more inherently vulnerable I become, right? The more inherently unstable things become, because suddenly I'm reliant on something that isn't me. And that's a real adventure for people. That can feel very uncomfortable for them. And I think that's where a lot of the strength of the ideology of individualism kind of comes from. It's like, oh, you can trust yourself because you know what's going on in there and you don't really know what's going on in that other person over there. For people who have that kind of an orientation, who walk into the room to do couples therapy, which is all about relationality, it's all about dual connection, it's all about relying on another person, how do you help them start to get comfortable with that kind of vulnerability? Like, what do you think helps them? Well, first of all, you have to you have to find a way to very gently question that whole stance. So when somebody's, I'm thinking of an extreme situation, okay? So somebody's wife says, well, you know, you just act like I'm an inconvenience and uh, mm. it's been going on for years and I can't get through to you and you don't seem to, it's not a priority for you to be with me. So I just feel so helpless right now that um, 
I just feel like there's nothing for it. I, I'm, I'm going to leave you. And I look at him and I say, and how do you feel when she says that? He's a human being. Whether he likes it or not, his nervous system is zinging, okay? There's part of his brain that's in a panic or he's dead. Those are the only two options. Or he doesn't care about this relationship. <laughs> he's already told yeah. me he does. He's already, he's, he's paying for me to do couples therapy, okay? So 99% of the time he does. So I say, how do you feel about that? And he says, fine, fine, fine. I just stay there. If you're going to sing to the amygdala, you have to keep, you don't do it once because the amygdala, the first time you do it, the amygdala says, no, not doing that. Mm -hmm. The next time you do it, the amygdala says, forget it. The next time you do it, the amygdala says, what did you say? <laughs> next time you do it, the amygdala says, um, well, yeah. The next Maybe. time you do it, I gotcha. <laughs> so I turn, <laughs> I turn around and say, could you help me? But notice my voice. If I do it high and fast, it doesn't work because I'm creating safety at the same time as I'm doing it. So I say, your lady just turned and said, and I'll, I'll load her message. I don't know how to find you. I can't find you anywhere. I'm all by myself. I have to give up and leave. I'm going to leave. I'm going to have to leave you. Do you care at all? Your lady just said that, and you said, what did you say? Fine. Is that what you said? Yeah. And then I'll do it again. He says, well, there's nothing I could say. Right, I understand. There's nothing you can say. So she turns and she tells you, I'm going to give up on you. And you say, fine. That's what you say, fine. When she says, number three, I'm yeah. going to tell you what <laughs> Number four, that would be really hard for most people, but you say, fine. How do you learn to do that, to turn into star? You turn into star, yeah? And he can't do it because he's a human being and he's an attachment bonding mammal. And he says, well, I, there's nothing to say because... She's already left and she doesn't want me and, 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 and he starts to move into his pain. But the point is, I know it's there because I have a map. Yeah. I know how to go into it because I have a map. If I'm yeah. a therapist who's never been taught to do that, I'm going to do something like say, oh, so it's okay for you. Then maybe this relationship is finished or maybe we can, you know, what would you need in order to stay? Misses something or, you know, whatever, whatever. And I'm talking, I'm, I'm going on about heterosexual relationships here. I mean, we deal with all kinds of relationships. We deal with gay relationships. We deal with relationships across cultures. You know, we, we go across cultures and religions and races and sexual orientation because... It's universal. We all have the same nervous system and we're all yeah. bonding mammals. Yeah. And I think what you're emphasizing totally here, Sue, is that the relationality is inherent, even if there's vulnerability yes. alongside it. So... The vulnerability is the vulnerability. It is what it is. The relationality is part of who you are. So like, it's all about learning to deal with the vulnerability that's inherent in that, but you can't just like turn it off. It's not a, it's not a switch you can flip unless you are an extremely disordered person. But yeah, you know. That's empowering for the therapist. Like one of my most lovely clients, he started off very intense, very intellectual man said, you know, um, therapists can't deal with me, you know. Most therapists can't deal with me. I'm much too encouraged, much too intense. 
And you know, and also I don't like going into all this feeling stuff. Okay. Do you understand? Mm, Do you understand? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I said, Yes, I understand. I'm hearing. I'm and then I reflect it back to him. But inside I'm saying, Oh yeah? Oh yeah? We'll see about that, buddy. Because I got a map and I see you, you know, and I've worked very hard for 35 years to be able to see you. And I got my binocs. They're not foolproof, but they're damn good. And I see you, man. So I'm coming for you, which mm. is why you're saying we all want to be found. Yes. Yeah. There's that pursuit orientation. Well, I absolutely love this, Sue. And I think that it's a fantastic note to just kind of wrap our conversation today on that idea of we all want to be found. Hey, you guys are fun to talk to. <laughs> oh, thank you. You're great to talk to you too. You are such fun to talk to. I can't believe it. I just feel like <laughs> you should give like interviewing Sue lessons or something. I don't oh, know. <laughs> thank you, Sue. <laughs> this is just wonderful. Just wonderful. Seriously, thank you so much. And May this be helpful to many, many people. May it be helpful. And it's been a delight to talk to you. And there's so much here to talk about. I mean, we all need to grow and keep growing. And I grow from listening to you, from doing these, from every client I see, I grow. And it's been delightful. I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you so much. It was amazing fun. Today, we had a wonderful time talking with Dr. Sue Johnson about emotionally focused therapy and her work with couples over the last 40 years, something like that, 35 years. And we began the conversation with Sue giving really a wonderful recap of the last 20 to 30 years of couples counseling therapy and the adventure that the field has been on from starting with an approach that that still exists to this day that's very much focused on skills development and a framework of relationships as essentially a tit-for-tat, I'll give you this if you give me that, and everything's just about negotiation. And Sue's work really moved couples counseling and relational therapy in general into a framework that was focused on, hey, it's right there in the name, emotions and the emotional relationship inside of the partnership. And this emotional relationship is itself based on a lot of the work done by John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth that developed attachment theory. And as Sue said a couple of times during the conversation, she views attachment theory as a kind of map. It's a model that can help us understand what a secure relationship looks like, and also what a not very secure relationship looks like. And we can start to view the patterns that emerge in our relationship, these cycles of conflict, through the lens of attachment theory. And one of the things that's really cool about EFT and one of the reasons that works so well is that it approaches those interactions, those patterns, as if they're the problem. So it's not so much that the partners are the problem, it's the patterns that are the problem. And that framing, for starters, can be way more approachable for people when they walk into the office the first time. And hey, if you're thinking about how to apply this in your own life, we could really take a lot of lesson from that as well, right? When you start making ad hominem complaints about your partner, that's a really slippery slope. But you can look at behavior or patterns or recurring conversations and frame them as not necessarily getting you where the partnership wants to go. And I didn't really ask Sue about this explicitly. I kind of wish we had had time to unpack this a little more, but we just talked about so much different stuff. It feels like there is a kind of pattern in the therapy itself, EFT, 
where the couple comes into the office and she talked about first establishing a secure basis of trust between the people. And again, we can apply all of this in not a therapeutic context to just being more skillful in our relationships in general. So you establish that basic identification with the person who has a complaint. Hey, yeah, you know, I see where you're coming from. Wow, it makes sense that you would feel this way based on your own attachment history. Wow, you had all of these things happen to you that were profoundly meaningful for you and, of course, influenced the way that you view relationships. And yes, you have this recurring problematic pattern inside of your relationship that you're not very happy with anymore. And then there's this attempt to move the, uh, I don't even really know the right way to put this, but to basically move the foundation of the interactions toward one that is more emotionally focused, toward one that is more relational, that is about underlying deep emotional wants and needs. Where's this behavior coming from? What does it say about the emotional desires of the partners involved? What is the real attachment communication that is being expressed by this pattern? Is there desires we talked about during the conversation for one of the partners to feel sought more? Is there an underlying feeling of insecurity, of vulnerability, of not feeling like a person is enough? And this shift in the room occurs very slowly. Sue talked about going through these repeated patterns of interaction with a person where you get three, four, five cycles of interaction where the therapist is moving very slowly, the voice is relatively quiet. There is a a thoughtfulness to the whole process around engaging the amygdala, as Rick called her, the amygdala whisperer, which was a pretty fun moment in the conversation. And a theme that came up throughout that we really focused on at the end is that relationality, this kind of deep emotional connection with another person, is inherent to us as people. Yes, there are sociopaths and psychopaths out there where maybe this isn't the case, but for 99% of people, We are relational beings in one way or another. And that relationship might feel unstable, it might feel insecure, it might feel painful, it might evoke feelings of sadness or anger. And that's all really understandable. That's all really normal part of being human. But just because you've cultivated this strong sense of individualism, this feeling of standing on your own and how you don't need other people and Being with other people is really quite uncomfortable because it means that suddenly you have to rely on something outside of the self. Well, sure, you might have built that over time, but that doesn't mean that you don't need relationality still. That doesn't mean that you don't have a desire inside of you for it. You've just cut it off. And that experience of reconnecting to that truth, right, that the primacy of relationship, the needs that we have for emotional, empathic, vulnerable connection with another person, reattaching to that for people who have become uh, essentially excessively individuated out of a defense mechanism is a huge part of the therapeutic process for many people. I loved this conversation with Sue. I felt like we talked about so much that I couldn't even think through everything that we talked about to recap it here at the end. So I just named some of the things that stood out to me. Again, she's the author of the bestseller Hold Me Tight. And she's also the author of Edgar and Eloise, an illustrated novel that is aimed at younger people, but again, is one of those books that I think almost anyone could get some value out of. If you enjoyed learning about Sue's work, I've included a bunch of links to it in the description of today's podcast. I've also included links to our social media accounts and our Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And if you've been listening for a while and would like to support the show, hey, you could always check it out. 
Also, if you could take a moment to leave a comment, maybe a positive rating and review, I think iTunes is the best for us, the whole Apple platform. But hey, if you do that anywhere, we also really appreciate that. So until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.